And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of God. Well, it's good to have you here today. Um, We're about to look at the Bible and God's word to each of us. Now, I know that we come here this afternoon with um, thoughts and, and feelings and emotions from a week past, from a week ahead. And it's often really hard to listen to God and to to still yourself with all these things running through our minds and our hearts. And I'm convinced right now that um, no matter who you are, what sort of week you've had, what we all need now is more of God's voice in our lives. And so to help that, I want to give you just a minute now to to still your soul, to take a minute just to reflect on, on maybe just being still before God. Maybe you want to pray for yourself, whatever it is. I just want to give you a minute right now. Um, just to quieten yourself before we look at his words. So give you a minute now. Father, you are not a God who is distant, who is, who is un- not concerned with who we are or our thoughts. You are in each moment of our days, each moment of our weeks, even though some of you don't recognize that. And you are here this afternoon. You are present by your spirit. You, you, as we gather, you are here. And so we want to pray that we'll be able to be, be still in your presence right now and hear you speak to us by your word. You know exactly what we need to hear. You know where our hearts are, our thoughts are, you know what our worries are, and you know that we just need more of your voice in our lives. And so as we come to this story of the healing of the paralytic, we would see the deep truths that are there 
the deep truths of you and your love and your gospel and your grace. And we want to pray that it would just be a fresh for us this afternoon. It would be a time of just restoration for our souls. Lord, speak through me as your servant. Just, just speak your truth through me that we would, just, we would just feed on your word because your word is reviving to us. So Lord, bless our time now we ask. Amen. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, uh, like father, like son. And as I watch my son, my son grow up and develop, I see a lot of similarities between he and I that I like, and some I think, I don't like that so, so much. Uh, I have, I've mentioned before, quite an obsessive personality in some areas of my life. I'm either all in or all out. I'm not good at moderation. It's not a thing that I, uh, I like, but I, uh, I try and manage. And I see it in my son. When he gets locked onto something, he is just single-minded, focused, bam, he's on it straight away. And uh, this week for him, it was all about a paper shredder. That's what he was locked on. That's right, paper shredder is what I said. He was all about a paper shredder in my family. We were at Katie's parents' house and they have a paper shredder. And for some reason, my kids love paper shredders. I don't know, but who doesn't, right? But he, they love just, 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 just shredding everything and watching it come out the bottom. And so we come home and Jet wants a paper shredder. He's like, I want a, I want a paper shredder. He's all in about the paper shredder. And so he's on, uh, on Katie's computer and he's researching Facebook Marketplace, Gumtree, like trying to find out which paper shredder, which price. He's all on this paper shredder. And then finally he finds one and then talks to Katie and they work out a deal. And so Katie's like, hey, when you get it, then every afternoon after school, have you got the paper shredder, Mum? Have you got it yet? Have you got it? Are you going yet? Are you going yet? Just all on about getting a paper shredder. Katie gets one, now we are now the proud owners of the second-hand paper shredder in our family, which is great, and uh, everything gets shredded. You've got to be careful when you leave papers, because gone, gone, paper's gone, it's just, a, just, just shreds. And uh, Jet is like that, he's all in, and we have a bunny who also loves shredded paper, so it wins, wins for everybody, right? bunny's loving it as well. But uh, like, like me, Jet, when he gets something on his mind, he is all in, he feels like he needs it, like father, like son. And uh, I'm similar when I'm convinced on something, I go all in. You know, recently we, we got a, a, a car for our family, a new car. So I researched for ages and watched all the reviews, asked everyone I knew who had this car, what, do you, what does it drive like, what is it like? And then everywhere you drive, all you see is your car. Like I was looking at Kia Carnivals, I saw Kia Carnivals everywhere. Like they're just following me everywhere and you just see it's so obsessed with this. I'm the same when, you know, I need new clothes. I only shop once a year and for clothes. <laughs> And I'm efficient at that shopping, so I list what I need. How many pairs of shorts, shoes, whatever. I just, bam, get it done. I get all obsessed around just knit some clothes at the shops. And uh, I want to get the best deal, and I don't want to miss out on anything. And I go to every shop first, just to check out all the shops, and then work out which is the best deal. I get a little bit obsessed over it. And uh, I guess it always gets too much sometimes, and I feel like I, I, I need this stuff. I need to get it. And these wants, I think, for me, in turn into a need. I have to have them. And the funny thing is, after I get them, I realize I don't really need them. It was just a deep want that I had, but I, it almost turned into a need. And I had this almost, what's going inside me is this false thought is, if I just get these things, they'll make me happy. They'll satisfy me. And I think we, we all have this tendency in us, right? Like, you know, if I was to say to you right here and now, you know, fill in this sentence, fill in the blank, if I had blank, then I'd be happy. If I had blank, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be okay. If I just had this, it'd make life so much better. 
And we all feel it. And we often feel discontent because we don't have this thing or whatever it is. And the roots of discontentment go deep in the human heart. I've been reading um, this excellent book at the back there, Tim Keller's book, uh, King's Cross, which navigates through Mark's gospel. And he mentions a, uh, a story or an article written by a secular journalist who's in New York named Cynthia Heimel. And uh, she speaks of um, uh, meeting and interacting with struggling actors and actresses who, uh, who are trying to make, get their big break, trying to, get their, trying to get their next big film or whatever it is, and they have to make ends meet by working at cafes or restaurants and getting tips, and they struggle. And while they're waiting for their big break, they say things like, if I could only land that big role or get that big part, then I'd be happy. And they are stressed out and driven and easily angered and deeply discontent. But she comments and says, when they do get their big breaks and land a role, they actually become more insufferable, more unstable, more angry and more manic. They're not just as arrogant as you might expect. Worse than that, they are now unhappier than they ever used to be. And she quotes, and I read it here. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Once were perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. Many of, uh, more than any of us, they want fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after, each of them becomes famous. They wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing they were striving for, the fame that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them some personal fulfillment and happiness has, uh, had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable. The thing they thought they needed or they thought they, was their greatest need that would make everything okay, it didn't. It didn't suffice. You know, this afternoon, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, what would you say your greatest need is right now? What is your greatest need in life? If I just had, I'd be okay. Today, as we look at Mark's gospel, as we look at who Jesus is, as Mark shows Jesus' identity to us again and again, we'll see God point us to our greatest need, and he'll show us why. We'll see Mark point at who Jesus is and see that he is our greatest need. And we're going to try and cover a big section of Mark today. I'm going to try and scoot through the first half quite quickly. So it'd be cool if you could track with me your Bible, your phone there, whatever it is. We're going to look through that. Then we'll slow down and just look at the healing of the paralytic. We'll just sit there for a bit. But I'm going to, so here's my sort of three movements to help you know we're going to track. It's five fights or five conflicts. Jesus, the greatest need. Then what is your greatest need? So this section we're going to look at, we're trying to track through the whole of Mark's gospel over the next 18, 19 weeks. And so we're going to try and track through Mark 2 today quite briefly. And in this section, we're going to see five different fights or conflicts that Jesus has with his opponents. And in these scenes, there's five different conflicts. It's a similar um, structure to the more similar pattern that Mark shows us. Jesus does something really startling or confronting, like a miracle or a teaching. Uh, Secondly, um, his opponents um, confront him and challenge him. Then he responds uh, to that confrontation by revealing who he is sort of the pattern that we're going to see, and I'll show you this over and over again. So let me show you this briefly. We're going to, we're going to jump into uh, sentences 13 to 17, just after the healing of the paralytic in chapter 2. It'll be on the screen behind me, and I'll just comment on it. Here we go. So it's this, up to this point in Mark's gospel, the crowds are building. Everyone wants to follow Jesus. He's been healing people, and everyone is coming and almost watching this sideshow that is Jesus at the moment. And it's building. Popularity is building. And as Jesus is there... He, uh, in, in sentence 14, he's by, I think he's by the lake or something like that, and then he walks past a man named Levi. 
Now, Levi is a tax collector, and he sees Levi, and he says to Levi, hey, Levi, follow me. Now, Levi would, who is Levi? Well, he's a tax collector, and he would have been hated by his fellow Jewish um, uh, family or, or fellow Israelites. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were the ones implemented by the Romans uh, to, who ruled over them to collect taxes on behalf of the Romans. So Levi was a Jewish man. His job was to take money from the Jews, give it to the Romans. But tax collectors also took their own cut and ripped off their own people and pocketed the money on the side for themselves. And so they were ripping off their own people and so rightly they were hated. And so this is the person that Jesus walks past and he says to this person, Levi, hey Levi, come follow me. Past the tax collector and says that. I'm choosing you, Levi, to be one of my disciples, one of my followers. This is quite shocking. If you look at the religious leaders saying, hey, does, does Jesus know who that guy Levi is? He is scum. Why choose that guy? But Jesus does know who he is and he chooses him. And sentence 15, not only did that, then Jesus goes and hangs out at Levi's house with all Levi's tax collecting friends, has a dinner with them, associates with them. Um, and then we get the response from uh, his opponents. Senate 16, the scribes and the religious leaders and Pharisees, they say, why is Jesus choosing to eat and associate with these tax collectors, these sinners, these scums? That's not who good religious people hang out with. So Jesus responds in a way that reveals who he is and why he has come, to reveal his identity and his mission. Senate 17 says, those, he says to the religious leaders, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus straight away by this, this event here is saying, I'm the physician of the soul. That's who I am. I've come to heal. I've come to make right those who are sick. That's who I am. And the issue here is that not that the, 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 the Pharisees are right. They just don't realize it. They don't realize their need for Jesus. And so Jesus confronts them again with who he is, the healer of the soul. The next one, round three, see another fight in sentence 18 to 22, the next event. This is all about fasting. So the ceremonial law of fasting that the Jewish people would have instituted, they, they didn't eat for a day to reflect on who God is and rely on him. But the problem with all these laws with these Jewish people and the leaders, the laws became the thing rather than the heart behind them. And how you kept this law was more important than God himself or why God instituted these laws. So we've read in sentence 18 that Jesus' disciples, they're not fasting when they should have by Jewish customs. And Jesus allows them not to fast. And Jesus is asked why. The religious leaders don't like that, then, that Jesus is not pulling up his disciples for not fasting. And so Jesus comes back at them and he gives three illustrations to try and show who he is. Uh, the first one is about oh, how at a wedding, a wedding you celebrate. You don't fast at a wedding. Actually, food is to celebrate. And Jesus says, when a groom comes, you don't fast. You eat and you celebrate. He also says, it uses two illustrations to talk about how you don't put new things into old structures. And Jesus' response is here. Is he's saying that the, 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 the groom has come. I'm the groom. I'm the one that's worth celebrating. You've been waiting for me and now I arrive. I'm here. He also says this new thing is I'm the new thing. I'm the new way to God. It's not about laws or rituals or rules anymore. I'm the new thing that the new structure is needed for. It's by grace. It's not about laws anymore. And it's worth celebrating, not fasting over. And again, Jesus is revealing that this is who he is. The time has come. The kingdom is near. 
sentences, uh, then the next round four and five are all about the Sabbath, again about rules and keeping laws and customs from the Jewish people. And the Sabbath was a time where a 24-hour period that God said to set aside to rely on Him, to enjoy His blessings. And the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing for humanity. But again, the Jewish people uh, and back in this day had made it all about rules and laws and what you can and can't do and quite restrictive. And so um, uh, Jesus comes in sentence 23 and He's walking with His disciples and they are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, which according to Jewish custom and to leaders was not allowed. That was work and they weren't allowed to do that. But Jesus, again, doesn't pull up his disciples for it. And Senate 24, his religious uh, opponents, they say, look, uh, why are they, Jesus' disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus does nothing about it. Why isn't he pulling them up on that? Jesus responds again in Senate 25, and he talks about the Old Testament, how King David was also allowed, he also uh, had food on the Sabbath, and that was okay. And he was Israel's greatest king. And Jesus says, well, uh, I'm, I'm greater than King David. I'm the new king who has arrived. And if he can do it, I can do it. And then he also says at the end, I'm even Lord of the Sabbath. I'm, I'm what the Sabbath is, Sabbath is made for. It's through, the, it's through me the Sabbath is, in, is instituted. Jesus again showing that he is the one with all authority. Finally, the last and fifth and final round of chapter 3, the start of chapter 3, again to do with the Sabbath. And this is all about... Um, they're in a synagogue, Jesus is teaching, everybody is there, and it's all building to this point where a man is there with a shriveled hand, he's, and uh, the, the, the Pharisees are there, Jesus is there teaching, and it's all set up for this scene of, of conflict again. And Jesus takes it head on, and he's not afraid, because he has all authority. And he knows the Sabbath is for blessing and doing good. And so he asks them in sentence four, he says, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? What do you think? the Jewish leaders. And they're trapped by his question. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to answer. If they say yes to do good, then he'll heal. And I say, he'll say, great. If it's, they'll say uh, to do harm, they're like, well, that's not what God intended. So they're trapped by his, his, his question. They remain silent. Jesus is angered by the lack of compassion and the hardness of heart toward him. So what does Jesus do? He gets the man with the shriveled hand and says, come stand in the middle and stand up in front of everyone and I will heal you and I will show you what the Sabbath is about and I'll show you who I am. And Jesus heals the man in full view of everybody, showing that he is the king who has compassion, the authority to heal. The kingdom is here, breaking in now, and he will do good and justice. And he is not about rules or laws, but bringing good and blessing to people. And at the very end, you see there that the, uh, the, the religious leaders try and uh, work out a way then to destroy Jesus because they know that he's pushing against them and their authority. And that's who Jesus is. And so these four or four or five conflict scenes are all about Jesus revealing who he is and his power. And the question is, who do you think Jesus is? I remember growing up in my family, it sometimes felt that my mum just had this superpower where she could find anything in the house within seconds. You know that thing where you'd say, hey, mum, I can't find, you know, it's about, you know you've got to leave for school in two minutes. She's, I can't find my library book. And mum would go, do you mean this library book? And she'd just find it, like, bam, right there in a flash. I'd be like, mum, I can't find my soccer boots. She's like, they're, in your, they're on your shelf, like on your, on your shoe cup. I'm like, no, they're not. But as soon as she said that, they just appear in front of me. Like, it's magic. I'm like, how does she do that every time? And I feel like my wife has the same superpower. 
I'm in the fridge looking for this, this, like a juice or a tomato sauce frame. I'm like, Katie, we're out of sauce. She's like, no, no, I bought it the other day. I'm like, no, it's not there. She'll come and go, oh, there it is. I'm like, oh, yeah, again, she gets me every time. Super. I'm not sure if it's a wife thing, a mum thing, a woman thing. I don't know what it is, but I think it's more of a Gav bad looking thing. I think that I think that I actually am not great at looking. That's the issue. I don't look hard enough or long enough, and I think I look for a glance, not there, gone, I'm out. And don't try very hard. And I can't see what is plain and what in front, what's in front of me. And it's the same issue here with the religious leaders. Jesus is again and again showing who he is. He is the King, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who's come to heal, to save. That is who he is. And their hearts are hard and they choose not to see him. He's the one who's come to heal the sick, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, who loves them and who's going to save them by dying on a cross for them in their place to give them life. He's the one who's come to rescue them from this issue of their issues of identity, trying to find their worth in being good and moral and upright by being these religious people. They don't see that he, their love and acceptance they are looking for in these laws cannot be found in them, but only in Christ. They don't see. They don't see that Jesus is their greatest need. And I wonder, do you see Jesus as your greatest need? Do you see him now as your greatest need, day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute? I want to take you back to the start of chapter 2, which Jez read for us before. So the story of the healing of the paralytic. Now, if you've been around church for any time, you would know this story. This is a famous story of Jesus making the, making the man who couldn't walk, walk again. We know this story. But I'd say there is so much, there's a depth to this that you need to understand. And I think there's a, there's a beauty of, of, of need and our greatest need found in this story, which I think God really sparked in my heart this week that I want to share with you here. And I hope God does the same thing for you. Let me run back to this story again. So it's chapter 2, 1 to 12. Again, if you have it, look at this with me. As I said, Jesus' fame had spread. So much so in this story here that he's turned up to a house to speak, and the house is full, no more room, can't get in, chock full, no room at the door, it even says there. There's no room at all in this place. He is so popular, so famous at the time. People are coming and seeing this side show that is Jesus. And in Mark comments, there's four men, and they come to Jesus, bringing a man on a mat who couldn't walk. He was paralyzed, a paralytic. And these guys are so desperate to bring their friend to Jesus. They've walked through the, the dirty streets of Jerusalem, hot, sweaty, carrying their friend on this mat throughout the streets, trying to get to this home, because they've heard that Jesus is at this place. And they think in their heads, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, surely he can do something. Surely, hopefully, he can heal our friend. And so they, they are desperate. And you see this desperation because they get there, they finally get there, and they arrive and the house is full. And you can imagine their hearts sink. Oh, the house is full, we can't get there. We can't see Jesus. And maybe, maybe one of them thinks, hang on, I've got an idea. Let's go to the roof. And so they climb the roof, and in those days it'd be a thatched roof, a flat roof, and you can pull back the thatching, and they look down, and Jesus is down there. And they think, well, maybe we can lower our friend and land him at the feet of Jesus. So they do. They lower their friend down, and he lands right at the feet of Jesus. 
I'm sure Jesus would look down and they'd be high-fiving, going, yeah, we did it, great, we made it. And they got their friend, what they wanted to do, right at the feet of Jesus. Now, this, this paralytic man is now front and center, lying there. And you could imagine Jesus there, he'd be in the house, and you're hearing Jesus preach, and then all of a sudden you look up, and then from nowhere, this person lands right in front of them. Amazing. They're in silence in the room. And you think, at this moment, Jesus has the decision to make. What is he going to say? Will he say, no, get in line? It's a full house? I'm still preaching. Wait. What is he going to say to this man? And he sees their desperation of their friends to do this. In sentence 5, Jesus commends them. And it says there, Jesus saw their faith. And he commends them. And you notice there, Jesus sees their faith. But what happens next? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you're healed, get up and walk, does he? Which is surprising. Have you ever thought this? It's surprising that Jesus didn't heal the man because, humanly speaking, a man is carried in. His four friends went to this huge effort to get this friend in front of Jesus, and the first thing Jesus says is not, uh, get up and walk. He says something else. Did you notice it? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the four friends must have think, what a ripoff. Seriously? We went to all this effort, and you said that? And the paralytic lane there going, Jesus, come on, like, I've got bigger needs than that. I've got bigger needs. My legs don't work. Can you fix them? But then Jesus, he sees what's going on. He sees that the paralytic can't walk. He knows that. Of course he knows that. But he sees the deeper need below the surface. He knows that the man, he knows something the man doesn't know. He knows there's a bigger issue than the physical condition. There's a spiritual issue, a spiritual spiritual condition he wants to deal with. He wants to go deeper because he loves this man. And again, I love what Tim Keller writes on this. This is so good. Let me read this to you. This is Tim Keller. He says, Jesus is confronting the paralytic with his main problem by driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking for only your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You haven't understood the depths of your longings, the longings of your heart. Everyone who is paralyzed naturally wants with every fiber of his being to walk. But surely this man would have been resting all of his hopes in the possibility of walking again. In his heart, he's almost surely saying, if only I could walk again, then I'd be set for life. I'd never be unhappy. I'd never complain. If only I could walk again, then everything in my life would just be right. And Jesus is saying to this person, son, you're mistaken. That may sound harsh, but it's true. Jesus says, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll, never feel, uh, you'll feel like you'll never be unhappy again. But wait, wait again two months, four months. The euphoria won't last. The roots of discontentment of the heart will go deep. Jesus is dealing with this man's greatest need because he loves him. Jesus is willing to die on the cross for this man to heal him eternally. And he's dealing with his greatest need of sin and his broken relationship with his creator. And he's going to give him a new identity as a forever loved child that will last forever. Jesus is this man's greatest need. The story continues. Jesus forgives the man. And immediately you have all the religious leaders around going, what on earth is going on? He can't say that. Because only God can forgive sins. And, and for once, these guys are right. Only God can forgive sins. Only if, if sin is against God. And so therefore, only God can forgive that. 
And in their opinion, Jesus is just a man who has no authority to forgive sins, and sin is not against him. But again, see who Jesus is claiming to be? If he has the power to forgive sins, he's claiming to be God himself. He's saying that sin is against me, and therefore I have, I have the authority to forgive that. So he's claiming to be God. And to prove that he can do it, he says to the man, get up and walk. He's doing the thing that is seemingly harder in human eyes by saying, get up and walk. I'll show you that I can forgive sins. I'll do the harder thing in your eyes. And he heals the man. And Jesus shows that, this man's, that he is this man's greatest need. Jesus is this man's greatest need and Jesus is our greatest need. There's a film called Chariots of Fire which won an Academy Award, I think, in 1981-82. And the story is based upon um, uh, a true story of two Olympians who competed at the, at the Olympic Games in 1924, Eric Liddell and uh, Harold Abrams. And Eric Liddell was a Christian man who refused to run on a Sunday because of the Sabbath. And uh, the Olympic final was on the Sunday, and he withdrew from the final, being the favourite to win, and lost his chance at a gold medal. The film contrasts Liddell with Abrams. And it's the, the film's all about this contrast of they're both driven to win, but with very different approaches. Liddell, a follower of Jesus, simply wanted to please God, who accepted him through Jesus. And at one point in the film, a great line he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's a cool line. On the other hand, Abrams was running and wanted to win the Olympics out of trying to prove himself. Speaking of the 100-metre sprint, Abraham said, Abraham said this, I have 10 seconds, the race, 10 seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Imagine living like that. With that pressure and believing that you needed to, to do something to prove you're worth it, to prove that, that you did justify your existence on earth, to show people that you're worth something by something that you achieve and you do. The pressure that is on you. This man's greatest need was to win to prove himself. His greatest need was approval. People think well of him. And if you think about this for a second, we live in a world where we all try to build our identity and our meaning and our worth in what we achieve or what we do. We talk about it all the time, what we do, what we achieve, and, and want to show others it's career, it's status, it's, it's being liked, having a relationship, being a good parent or, or being successful or wealth or owning a house or whatever it is, right? And like Harold Abrams, it almost becomes like we, we need this to happen because we build our hope, our life, our meaning, our worth on it. And we think that if our deepest desire or, or we put, try to build our life and comes true, then it'll be okay. It'll be fine if we just get this thing, if this just happens. If I can just own my own house, then I'll be okay. If I can just get that job or promotion, then, then I'll be okay. If I just get these, these marks at university, then I'll be okay. If I just get a relationship, then, then I'll be happy. If I just get a bit more money, or be, if I just a bit healthier, then it'll be okay. And we look at these things to save us from our discontentment and our mediocrity, and we look at almost these things as our saviour, even though we wouldn't call them that, but deep down, that is what's going on inside us. And until we get these things, or if we, if we try and get them and we don't quite get them, we feel angry or disappointed or, or grumpy or whatever it is, and if we do get them, 
We feel more unhappy because it doesn't actually do what we want it to do, because they're not made to do those things. They're good things, but they're not made to do these God things. The Bible says there is one Savior, and His name is Jesus. One Savior. And whenever we build our identity and find our worth in something other than Jesus, we're going to always feel let down and unfulfilled. And that's, that's the real problem. And Jesus says that I have come that you may have life and have it at the full. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Jesus says that if you have me, you have all you need, that, that I am enough. And I wonder if you believe that. Jesus says, I'm the only one who can fulfill you. I made you. I know what you need. I'm your greatest need day by day by day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute. I'm what you need. And Jesus says, if you fail me, I forgive you. I'm the only Savior who can do that. I think many of us who profess to know Jesus want his forgiveness and his grace, but we also run after other things and try to find our worth and happiness in them. So it's Jesus plus success, Jesus plus a relationship, Jesus plus status, Jesus plus financial security. And when these things that we try and build our worth in fail, we run back to Jesus and say, I need you again. When we feel a bit better, we go back to these other things again. With this ebb and flow that we follow. You know that God loves you so much that he sent his son to be our saviour? to rescue us from sin and death, to rescue us from pursuing and our worth and happiness in things that will leave us feeling disappointed and empty and frustrated. And I wonder, for you, do you, will you let Jesus be your Savior? He's our greatest need and He wants to go deeper with you. Like the paralytic who thought his greatest need was to walk. Jesus knew what his greatest need was, and out of love, he said, no, no, we're going deeper. I believe we need to keep letting Jesus be our greatest need and letting him go deeper in every sphere of life. We are a constant work in progress where he's pruning and cutting and for, for our good and joy and his glory. We need to let him go deeper and see that he is our greatest need. I want to finish with a story that, um, that again, from the book that we read, Tim Keller's book, he, he reflects on the story from Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you've read this one. I've been reading it to my son a little bit. And it's the story of Eustace. There's an interesting character in this book. And Keller reflects on this, and this, and this sums up, I think, this idea of Jesus, Jesus wanting to go deeper with us and in us. Let me read it for you. There's a boy named Eustace. Everyone hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish, he's mean, and no one can get along with him. But he finds himself magically on a boat, the Dawn Treader, taking a great voyage. And at one point, this boat pulls into an island, and Eustace wanders off, and he finds a cave. The cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold, and he thinks, I'm rich. And immediately, because of who he is, he thinks, now I'll be able to pay everybody back. Everyone who has laughed at me and mocked me and stepped on me and slighted me, they're going to get their comeuppance in seeing who I and how rich I am. Eustace falls asleep on this pile of treasure, which yet he doesn't know is the hoard of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with the greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he himself becomes the dragon. He's big and terrible and ugly, and soon he realizes there's no way out of being a dragon. He can't go on the boat because they see a dragon, they'll try and kill him. And he's going to be left on the island alone. 
and he's going to have a horrible existence all the days of his life and he falls into this deep despair. One day, the great lion, Aslan, who's the Jesus character in this book, he turns up and he leads him to a clear, cool pool of water and tells Eustace, at the, while he's a dragon, to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realizes that undress means take off the dragon skin. He begins to gnaw and claw off his own scales and he realizes that he can't shed his own skin. Working at it, he finally peels off the skin, but to his dismay, he finds that underneath, he's got another dragon skin. He tries a second and a third time, but to no avail. The same thing keeps happening time and time again. In the end, Aslan the lion says, Eustace, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story later. He says, I was afraid of Aslan's claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever, only ever so much thicker and darker and more nobly looking than others that the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but for a moment. Then I saw I'd turn into a boy again. And Keller concludes with this. He says, like the paralytic man and like Eustace, we think if we go a little deeper, if we just get a little bit of help, we can save ourselves. We learn that Jesus wants to take us deeper. We have to let him use his claws and go all the way to our heart and reconfigure the main thing that our heart wanted. You see, it wasn't wrong for the paralytic to want to walk or for Eustace to want to be loved or accepted or respected. The fact that we think getting our deepest wish would heal us, would save us, that was our problem and we had to let Jesus be our saviour. Mark's gospel shows us again and again who Jesus is, and he is our saviour. He's our saviour we need every single day, and we need to let him go deeper in our lives. He's the king who has come to save us, and he is our greatest need. And I guess the question this passage asks us is, will you let him be your saviour? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, you, you are so kind to us in so many ways. We, we often, I often run after things that will not suffice, that will not fulfill, that will just bring harm, and yet you call us back again and again and again, and you show us lavish grace. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who is the only Savior, who is our King, our brother, and our friend. And thank you so much that even though we do stray, that, you, that, he, that Jesus, you come and you rescue us. We want to pray that we be people who see that you, Jesus, are our greatest need in moment by moment. Thank you so much. You have saved us into a relationship with you. That we are now forever loved children of you. And that is who we are. Not based upon achievement or effort or, or trying, but based upon your finished work on the cross. We want to pray we'd embrace that and say that we need more of you every single day. We want to pray you move away from a simple understanding of the gospel, it being that Jesus died and I go to heaven now. But we need more of you to transform us to be more like your likeness every single day. And that is where true joy, true happiness, true peace and rest is found. Lord, we want to shine like light for you. We want to be your people in this world, being the people who bring your kingdom to this world. But we know we need to we can only do that when we let you be the saviour of our lives. 
Lord, our lives are busy, are fast, so many thoughts and lies run through our head. We want to pray that you people who look to you, Jesus, our Savior. Thank you so much for your grace and your love and your mercy. We want to experience that again tomorrow. Your mercies are new each morning. We want to thank you and praise you for that. Thank you so much, Jesus. You are our greatest need. Help us be people who see that and live in light of your beautiful truth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Give me time to reflect on what God might have said to you, and then I'll hand over to Jez.